Please open your Bibles to the 119th Psalm, Psalm 119, as we continue our tandem study of the book of James in Psalm 119, we now return to the longest chapter in the Bible, and we'll be looking at um, verses 129 to 136. I'll remind you that Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic. Each eight-verse chunk, strophe, um, stanza, starting with the next sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Pei being the letter of this chunk. And I'll also remind you that Psalm 119 is an extended prayer to the God of the Word about the Word of God. That's the dominant theme even as suffering, guidance, help, strengthening, refreshing are brought in, a spirit-filled man of God is talking to the God of the Word about the Word of God. I'd like to begin by reading verses 129 to 136. You'll find the insert in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the insert. Let's read these eight verses and have a word of prayer. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me, be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Lord God, as we study these eight verses, I pray that you would Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you might impart understanding and give light to us, that we might keep your word, that you might turn to us, keep our steps, that you might guard us from iniquity taking dominion over us, that you would redeem and deliver us from the oppression of man, that you would make your face to shine upon us, that you would teach us your statutes. And we have your heart in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. In these eight verses, a number of themes current in Psalm 119 come together. I think the dominant feature is the shiningness of the word, the illumined word, and the shining face of God directed at his people. The center of the psalm is filled with six requests. Um, but first, let us look at light and longing Verses 129 to 131. And here, the, the psalmist alternates by declaring attributes of God's word and then speaking of his own response. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Right theology needs to breed a right response in the reader the understander, the child of God. We've talked about this before in James, but simply knowing truth only qualifies you to be a demon. You believe God is one, James says. 
Even the demons believe and tremble. Right understanding of what God's word is, who the God of the word is, demands a right response from us. We see these two things come together in these opening three verses. So first he gives an attribute. He says God's word is wonderful. Wonderful. Now words like wonderful and awesome are words we use far too plainly. You think of wonderful. It is a wonder. Full of wonder. But I can say that chocolate chip cookie was wonderful. In a sense. But the, the Hebrew behind this is really the idea of a wonder. A marvel. Your testimonies are marvelous. They're, they're, they're staggering. They're jaw-dropping. They are wonderful. A right response, a right understanding of God's word is to stand in awe and wonder at it. It is otherworldly. It is unlike any other writing or book. That's the idea. The psalmist has said things like this previously, but here he's just declaring the awesomeness. And again, that's another word, awesome, that we use. um, Full of awe and wonder. But in its full meaning and sense, that's what the psalmist means here. He understands God's word as amazing. It's bright, which leads to his response. Therefore, my soul keeps them. There's a connection between being enthralled, seeing as wonderful God's word, and responding in obedience. Conversely, if if you don't respond in striving to keep God's word, I, I don't care how much you can quote of the Westminster Catechism, how much scripture you can quote, you don't see it as awesome. You don't see it as wonderful. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The response in inward and sincere obedience. This isn't formalism. This isn't legalism. This is the natural response. Right. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. I just, I just want to illustrate how this works. One of There are a number of ways we can think of growth in Christ, what we sometimes call sanctification. But one of my favorite passages, actually, sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, one of my favorite passages giving us a picture or a model of growth in Christ is found at the end of 2 Corinthians 3. Um, And here Paul frames it as beholding glory. I've said in a previous message that one of the most important things you can seek and pray for and pursue is to never stop seeing wonders and glories in God's word because that's how God grows his people. Second um, Corinthians 3, starting in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he'd come out and he'd glow and it would creep out the Israelites. So he'd put a veil over his face till it faded. Um, Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So he now is using the metaphor of a veil. There are people who read God's word and they don't see glory. They don't see a wonder. They have a veil. Over their face, a spiritual veil. He'll he'll deal with this in a moment. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now we're confident we're dealing with a metaphor. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, 
is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and by implication and the context, in his word, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul, stay here, I'm going to read a few more verses, but Paul is saying, is one way of framing growth as a Christian is to look into God's word. The veil is not there. You're not bored. You're not checking off your quiet time list. You're seeing something wonderful, something glorious, and that changes you. You change in response. And so I don't want to just skip over these opening verses because we can talk about God's word is wonderful, God's word is awesome. It is critical that we see it that way. It is critical that we ask the Lord to reveal it to us that way. We've already seen in Psalm 119, open my eyes, the prayer, open my eyes. I probably pray this prayer more than any other when I come to God's word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your word. Because whether or not you see glory in the word of God not only impacts your growth as a Christian, Paul can also frame those who perish and those who are saved in the same categories. Keep reading into chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And now Paul is going to deal with the fact that even though he's declared his gospel is glorious, God is glorious, his word is glorious, why do so many people, Paul, reject your message? Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So in a very real sense, why do men perish? They don't see glory when they see the gospel. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People who perish, they can comprehend the facts of the gospel. They can, they can understand what you're saying. But those who perish don't see it as beautiful, wonderful, glorious. It's boring. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. How, then we're going to see positively, how are people saved? God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light, the knowledge, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are saved because God said, see glory. Turn the lights on. The veil was removed and we saw something wonderful. So back to Psalm 119. I stress this point because we need to be very nervous when we start becoming bored with God's word. And we cannot in our own strength be excited about what we're not excited about. And we can't in our own strength see glory where we don't see glory. But we can begin recognizing something's amiss, crying out to the Lord to open our eyes, crying out to the Lord to reveal his glory and his word to us and put it in front of our faces. It is no small matter if you find yourself bored with God's word. And you will also find yourself failing in obedience in that response because there's that reciprocal relationship. You see glory and you're changed. Here, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, that's the cause of my soul keeping them. 
So do we have to put energy and effort and work into our Christian life? Absolutely we do. And we need to behold glory and see something wonderful in God's word. They come together. That's the first point, the attribute and response. God's word is wonderful. The response, inward and sincere obedience. If you're struggling with obedience, redouble your efforts to be obedient, but also redouble your efforts to see glory, to seek that God would fill you with wonder at his word. Their two are connected tightly. Next attribute, God's word is enlightening. God's word is enlightening. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now, literally here, the Hebrew is the opening or the opening of the door. And the idea is this. I'll, I'll read from um, Will, Bill Barrick. Literally, the opening or the door of your word gives light. In ancient Israel, homes had few windows. If they lived in tents, their situation was basically the same. Most interior illumination during the day came from light entering the door. And the picture is you're in a dark room, and you open the door, and in comes the light. He's describing that's what opening the Bible is like. That's what opening God's word is like. The opening of your word gives illumination, gives light. It's wonderful. It's bright. It's light-giving. We've already read in Psalm 119, your, your word is a lamp to my feet. And that's the same picture here. God's word is not only full of wonder, but the notion of light is it helps us make sense of things. Helps us interpret the world. Helps us understand who we are, who our neighbor is, what's going on. God's word is enlightening. And it's not just enlightening for the, the mature Christian, which it is. Another wonderful attribute of God's word is it instructs the simple you don't have to have a PhD to be a Christian. It's not the religion just for smart people and educated people. If you will turn to God's word, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll seek to see glory in it, no matter how simple, naive, and foolish you are, you can be instructed and enlightened. These, these verses are very similar to Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Growth as a Christian doesn't depend on how smart you are. It depends on whether or not you will turn to God's word to instruct you and whether you will see glory in it. God's word is enlightening. God's word instructs the simple, which then gives a response. Here's sort of the cumulative Cumulative response. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. It's a a vivid picture. It's a picture of a a little bird in a nest. You ever seen on the, in either real life or on the Nature Channel, those birds crying out because the mother bird's got the worm and they're just. For me, the the, the twins crying out for food, (laughs) competing with one another. Um, But that's, that's the idea. The idea is a visceral, deep, powerful, longing, hunger, thirst for God's word. If, if you understand this, if, if you actually see it, it's wonderful. It makes the simple wise. It sheds light like an opening of a door in a dark room. How could we not respond but with voracious hunger and longing? 
hunger and longing. That, that, and again, if that's not your response, don't fool yourself. Recognize that's not a good sign and ask the Lord to increase your appetite for his word. Ask the Lord to grow your desire and maybe clear your schedule to put more time in the word. It may just be that you aren't spending enough time in God's word to see glory. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And then first Peter quoting this passage. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So these two things correspond. The desire for God's word, a hunger for God's word, relates directly to understanding, to seeing God's word as wonderful, as light-giving, as instructing. And that understanding creates in us an inward desire to obey, an inward longing for God's word. We know what this is like when, when you want something, that sense of longing, whether it's you know, the, the, the new movie sequel that's supposed to come out or something you've ordered. I find myself sometimes checking on UPS just to see if perhaps it's not going to get here faster. I think we all know what it's like to hunger, yearn, long for something. And make no mistake, God wants us to feel that way about his word. And not feeling that way, it should be a symptom that no, I'm off. Maybe I'm distracted. I mean, t- turn to First Peter. As First Peter quotes Psalm 34, he gives one insight into what might clog that appetite. Please, please don't think these are just nice prose and hyperbole. This is what God desires for us, a, a, an enthralling, exciting, satisfying relationship with him and his word. And 1 Peter 2 will quote Psalm 34, 8. But Peter will helpfully add the not this, but this. So it's not just desire God's word, but not this. And the implication is, to use the culinary metaphor, sin, indulging in sin, may well stifle your appetite. So 1 Peter 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. But see the implication? These things may stifle your appetite. So if you don't have an appetite like this that you should, maybe do a thorough examination of where you might be snacking on unwholesome fare. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, back to Psalm 119. So that's the first section. It's emphasizing the light and the wonder of God's word, and emphasizes the natural response of God's people. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way the relationship is supposed to be. And now we move into a series of six petitions. Six requests. You can see them just coming in bullet form. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. 
Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So let's take a look at these requests one at a time. The first, grace me or be gracious to me. Grace me. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Grace me for I love your name. And what the psalmist is saying is this, grace by definition cannot be obligated. Uh, We've talked about this before. Grace is unmerited. So the psalmist doesn't say, I deserve it because I love your name. He's saying something a little different. What he's saying is, Lord, you have a habit, you have a pattern of giving grace to those who love your name. I love your name. This This is gospel reasoning. I need grace. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. But I have seen this pattern, O Lord, that you grace those who love your name. It pleases you to pour out grace upon those who love your name. And of course, God's name is his character, who he is. As we learn who he is, we love him. Well, God delights in gracing such people. God delights in gracing such people. Give me grace. Even as he sees the glory of God's word, even as his soul responds in obedience, even as he praises it as a light, even as he longs for it, he's not satisfied with the grace he has. He wants more grace. He's calling on the Lord for more grace. He's not earning it. He's not buying it and purchasing it. He's, he's pleading for it. It's, it's the way God would have his children come to him. Grace me, for I love your name. Next, Guide me, guide me, keep steady my steps. These next two requests, kind of two sides of the same coin. He says, um, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Guide me. And one of the things this psalm and this paragraph bring together are both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Already, the psalmist has declared that his soul keeps God's word. And you can read through the psalm and see the energy the psalmist takes, how diligent he is to pursue obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And yet this psalm is also full with references and confessions that such obedience is only possible with God working in him. In the New Testament, we get passages like Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So if my salvation gets worked out, was it me working or was it God working? The answer is yes. And that same type of um, congruence, concurrence, is in view here. Even as the psalmist is taking full responsibility, his soul is striving to obey God, he's asking the Lord to direct his steps. And biblically, God does exactly this. The the Proverbs are full of this declaration. Listen to Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And the picture of keep steady my steps, especially in a mountainous terrain like Israel, is you're climbing, you're going up, you're going down, you want sure feet. 
David praising God in 2 Samuel says, He has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. And so the mountain goat, the deer, these are pictures of animals who can climb and move with security, even on steep slopes. And so the picture is, Lord, I don't want to stumble. Wherever I'm going, wherever my steps are, secure my steps. And then the flip side of that is guard me. So guide me and then guard me. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. And again, even as this psalmist is in a healthy place, his soul is entranced by God's word. He sees glory in it. He is panting. And I mean, if, if, if you or I could say, honestly, I am panting and hungering for God's word and I see glory in it, we might be tempted to think we're doing well. His concern, Lord, don't let iniquity get dominion over me. He's not um, thinking he stands. He's taking heed lest he falls. Guard me. Do not let any sin rule over me. And again, this is similar to Psalm 19, verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Because the picture is sin enslaves. Sin binds like cords. We tempt ourselves into thinking that we can pick up sin and put it down, that we can play with it and walk away from it when we want. But Jesus makes it clear in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Whoever we present ourselves as willing slaves to obey, to them we are slaves. And so the psalmist, even in this healthy spiritual condition, is aware, <laughs> I'm just a few steps away make the wrong choices from being dominated by iniquity. Lord, don't let that happen. Guard my steps. Do not let iniquity get dominion over me. Similar, in fact, to our Lord's prayer that he taught us, lead us not into temptation. If I'm going to not be ensnared and enslaved by sin, I'm going to need to work at it, but I'm also going to need the Lord's help guarding me as well. It's both and. He's totally dependent on God's grace even as he is working and striving and inwardly seeking to obey. It's it's not an either or. It's It's a both and. Guard me. Do not let sin rule over me. Next, redeem me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. He's still looking to God as a savior and a deliverer. Now, we've seen in the psalm the oppression of man. He's got enemies who are opposed to him. And we, too, in this life, in various ways, have enemies, people who can harm us, people who can wish us ill. And God would have us call out to him for deliverance. But notice also why he wants to be delivered. You and I may be tempted to say, deliver me from man's oppression because I don't like pain and suffering. Because I don't like to be afraid. That's... True, and I suppose that's fine as far as it goes, but redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Why, why do we want the Lord to act for us? That we might be more faithful to him, we might be more single-minded to him, more so that we can devote ourselves to other things we're interested in. When we come to our Father as obedient children, Father, I want to obey you. I want to please you. Please remove these things from my path that might distract or inhibit me. You're going to find a Father who delights in answering your prayers. Redeem me, that I may keep your precepts. 
Um, This picture of redemption, both at the big macro level, God redeeming us from sin and iniquity, God redeeming us from oppression. You know, we're celebrating, we're coming up on Christmas, the Advent, thinking about the incarnation. And Luke 1, 68, response to the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God not only redeems us from iniquity, we see that in Jesus Christ on the cross, but Jesus will return, Carol was talking about this, to redeem, to deliver his people from the oppression of man. We have a God who is a redeemer. Redeem me. Next, bless me. Bless me. It's possible that you may pick up some echoes of another text in this next verse. Make your face shine upon your servant. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to, to Numbers, I'll show you what this is echoing off of. Numbers chapter 6. Most Sunday morning services, if I remember, I close with a benediction. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. It's a pattern we get in Scripture. And there are a number of benedictions, blessings in God's Word. But one of the first corporate ones is found here. Aaron the father of Israel's priesthood is told this in, in Numbers six twenty two to 27. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and I believe these words will be familiar to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance upon you, his countenance upon you, and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So this request, make your face shine upon your servant, I think is referencing that. He's asking for the full package of blessing. Lord, look to me favorably. I mean, it's the, it's the picture of a father, of a king, looking at a child or a subject His face lights up with joy and pleasure. Lord, look on us that way. And by your pleasure and by your joy in us, may it establish us and build us up. That's what he's asking for. That the Lord would turn to him and pour out his divine favor upon him. Finally, in point E, teach me. Teach me. Teach me. That, teach me your statutes. And even as the psalmist is meditating on God's word, he is studying God's word, he's hiding it in his heart, he recognizes, and again, this is the twofold responsibility. I need God to teach me. You need God to teach you. Even as you're sitting here and I'm trying to teach you, and even as you're reading and studying on your own, it's again the both and. His spirit in us teaching us, leading us, even understanding God's word, it's not something we can do on our own. So those are his prayers and petitions. Grace me, guide me, guard me, redeem me, bless me, and teach me. By the way, this request to be taught is the 10th out of 12 such petitions in Scripture. Um, in, In this psalm alone, 12 times he asks, the Lord to teach and instruct him.
Finally, his grief for the godless. Verse 136, his grief for the godless. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He's loving God's word. He's seeking to obey God's word. He's asking the Lord for his request. But even in there, as he sees glory, as he sees wonderful things, is a grief over the godless. He begins by describing its effect. My eyes shed streams of tears. Matthew Henry once wrote, The sins of sinners are the sorrows of saints. The sins of sinners are the sorrows of saints. Even as he loves God's word, there is grief. These two things coexist. Joy and sorrow don't cancel each other out. The Apostle Paul speaks about how his heart is filled with both joy and sorrow, even as there's delight, satisfaction, hunger, earnest desire to obey, there is grief. And throughout this psalm, he's been speaking about those who do not obey God's word, and it causes him real grief. This is similar to the Apostle Paul writing about his countrymen in Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, um, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Israelites who have rejected their Messiah. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul, who boasted in his gospel, who delighted in the gospel, also had sorrow over the unbelief of his kinsmen. Um, My eyes shed streams of tears. Notice the cause because people do not keep your law, which is an interesting spin spin on things. Um, It shows that his loyalty and his commitment is with God. What's grieving him is not fundamentally people are perishing, not that that is not a cause for grief. Paul, in Romans 9, is expressing that sorrow. But here, the sorrow is because God and his word are being dishonored. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And in light of what he's just said about God's law, it's tragic. First point, the cause, because they dishonor God's wonderful word. And here's the rationale. God has graciously given us his word. He didn't need to give us his word. He didn't need to speak. It was grace. He spoke freely. And his word is life-giving. His word is light. His word is wonderful. His word instructs the most simple. And people say, no, I'm not interested. And in doing so, they dishonor God's wonderful word. And because he loves God and his word, he can't stand that the Lord's word would be so 
dishonored. That's what's causing him grief. And point two, because in doing so, they despise God's grace. They despise God's grace. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, behold, therefore I will do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. It is tragic that men and women reject God's word, let it drop to the ground. It's tragic for their sake, but there's also a sense in which it's tragic for the sake of God's grace. God has been so generous, so kind, so good, and yet there are people who reject it. And that fills the psalmist with grief. It should fill us with grief because they despise God's grace. So in this stanza, we see light and longing in God's word, the response of the psalmist, hunger, longing, desire to obey. He pours out his heart asking for grace, for guidance, for guarding, for redemption, for blessing, and to be taught. And he confesses his ceaseless sorrow over the godless who do not obey God's word. This, this is a good picture of our heart, what it should look like. We should ask the Lord to make of it. Let's close now in a word of prayer. Lord God, we would have this heart. We would see glory in your word. And we, we can't make ourselves do that. We can't make our eyes see wonderful things where they don't. We need your grace. We need you to open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. We need you to soften our hearts, to unstop our ears. But Lord, we also need to, on our part, set your word before us and call upon you. And we would do that now. Lord, we pray that you would, by your word, quicken us, cause us to obey you, cause us to walk in your steps, even as we call on you to establish those steps, even as we call on you to protect us, guard us from the enslaving power of sin. Lord God, guard us from iniquity. Lord, teach us, be favorable to us, and may your favor and your delight in your people be our strength be our joy. And Lord, give us a soft heart that grieves over the fate of the lost and grieves over your grace that's trampled in the dust. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.